Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. I'm telling you folks now, we are all geeked up. I'm looking at Danny Moses chomping at the bit. He's chewing tobacco or something. Dan Nathan is here. He's all geeked up. I can almost say without equivocation, this might be the most energetic on the tape you have ever heard in your life. I'm fired up. And oh, by the way, later on, we're going to have an interview with Jason Kander, author of Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. He was a New York Times bestseller. He will be a two-time New York Times bestseller on the back of this book. I am ready to go here, folks. There's a word that I use from time to time. The word is fruition. Things come to fruition, Dan Nathan. And what's amazing to me, now we've been doing this, I think, 18 months. Is that correct? Correct. Year and a half. The On The Tape podcast with Danny Moses and Dan Nathan along with Guy Adami. It's 18 months-ish, right? And we try to weave a narrative. And it's like some people like to knit. And it takes people a long time to knit like a quilt or sweater. But when the sweater's done, you look at it like, oh, my God, here's this beautiful sweater that I've spent 18 months knitting. Danny Moses has been knitting this sweater over time. And over the last couple of days, what I've noticed, all of these things, Danny, have come to fruition. Your sweater that when you take off your shirt, it appears that you're wearing one, is finished. Because we have J.P. Morgan, and it's interesting, people sort of discounted Jamie Dimon a couple months ago, a month and a half ago, when he said there's a hurricane coming. I don't know if it's a Cat 1, Cat 4, blah, blah, blah. But we saw J.P. Morgan earnings on Thursday, and they're now taking loan loss reserves. So what does he see? What does he see? What did he see? What does he see? And what do you see? Hold on a second. And I am fired up. And you, people in Europe are going to need the sweater and quilt, whatever I'm knitting, because they're not going to have any power this winter. But that's okay. But, Guy, you made a post the other day. We joke about music. We bring pop culture in. You want to start with that? Yeah, okay, I want to start fine. with this. You and your top 15, okay? I get it. Zeppelin, okay. I totally respect. Get it. I'm from Athens, Georgia. Right. I respect R.E.M., mm-hmm. okay? I like Simon and Garfunkel. But right. they're, they're poets. You know, it's, it's beautiful stuff. Van Halen, one of the cheesiest bands. Stop. Like them. Generational. No. Hold on. Gener- I like that. But the stuff, the, the, the comments here, how is R.E.M. above the Beatles, first of all? And there's obvious 
names missing. I guess you hate the city of Seattle because there is nothing on here that resembles any of the music that Dan and I, I think you're doing it just to hurt us. No. This is a bit of a train wreck. And let's be clear, this was introduced during Fast Money on Wednesday afternoon, so it sounded like it was tapped out. I actually did this during a commercial break at Fast Money. I'm going to read the list, and then you guys can opine. Led Zeppelin, number one. I don't think there's any, there's no argument there. The Who, number two. You can argue, but The Who belongs there. The Brothers Allman, number three. You're going to say they're too high, no, but they belong on the list. That's good. No question. Bruce Springsteen at four. What's the problem no. there? argument five skinner i love leonard skinner they're the soundtrack of my youth you don't want him in there that's fine number six stevie ray vaughn probably the greatest guitar player of our lifetime no question stone seven you got a problem with the stones i'm not a stone i don't that's fine clapton i mean clapton is a genius yeah eight number nine dire straits a much maligned probably not a band that people give enough attention to number nine eagles 10 come on problem 11 queen Freddie Mercury, the greatest frontman in the history of rock and roll. Number 12, the aforementioned R.E.M. from Athens, Georgia. In the 1980s, R.E.M. dominated the decade, without question. You're going to give me a hard time with Simon and Garfunkel? I'm going to say you never saw Simon and Garfunkel live. Brilliant. Number 14, the aforementioned Van Halen. Brilliant band. Six albums that just kicked ass. And number 15, Beatles. Tell me where I'm wrong. So you know what's obvious about like how much time we just spent on this is that there's no Giants, no Rangers, no Knicks. Like this is how we're gonna. Kind I also of, uh, wanted to avoid talking about the markets, and I needed a distraction to kind of before we go into this thing, which I'm happy to dive into here. But I wanted to get that out because I'll put my 15 out next week. We can. We All right, can fine. Talk Amanda, about you're it, gonna but... put this in the show notes, guys. Tweet from yesterday. No, but hold on. I'm just curious as to there's obviously. Pearl Jam is missing? Yes. Okay. U2 is missing. Pink Floyd is okay. missing. Pink Floyd is yes. missing. Yes. Pink Floyd, by the way, if I went 25 to 50, they're not okay. in. Okay. I saw a show, The Wall at the Wall. That'll change your life. Oh. July 21st, 1990. <laughs> All right. Anyway, let's move on. By the way, that was in Germany. That's one of the topics, obviously, we're going to talk about today. Let's lead with the maestro, Jamie Dimon. Should we do that? Yes. Well, I started. I said Jamie Dimon. Ten minutes JP ago. JP Morgan's earnings. Thanks for sticking with us, people here. Yes. Thank you. Front stage, Jamie Dimon, front stage. All right, so I don't think any of it sounds like none of his salespeople are doing that anymore. They're looking at the expense budget. But anyway, so nothing was unexpected, really. Right, The one thing that was unexpected was canceling the buyback. By the way, the dividend is much larger than the buyback. It's a token on the buyback. So, And I'll get into that in a minute. Credit losses, $1.1 billion in credit costs that were reserved. By the way, this time last year, they were releasing $3 billion. A lot's changed in a year. That's exactly right. And then I think what really spooked people was and now everyone was looking it up on Wikipedia or whatever, is this common equity tier one ratio, this the CET one, right, that they call it. And that basically is Basel three. Again, don't lose me, people. Dodd-Frank, just throw it all in the same. After the global financial crisis, the international world decided the banks need to have X amount of capital, and they stress test everything. What he did today, that's where he, he spent all of his venom was towards that mm-hmm. 12 13%, whatever the number. He blamed not by – he also said, I will stop lending. Watch what I do. I will fire mortgage people. I will stop lending into the space. The people that need mortgages most, if you make me do this, and I think it's bullshit. I think he may have even cursed on it. So what he's saying was there's a risk-weighted adjustment. People just throw in. They said, okay, you have X amount of billions of mortgages on your balance sheet. We're going to stress test it to X, which makes you require X amount of capital on your balance sheet. So we are nitpicking here that he actually needs to reserve more capital than he probably should. And I think he's right. I think they're antiquated. And I think as we go through this recession, I think that the world will realize these banks are in much better shape, most of them. The European banks, a whole other podcast. But the U.S. banks are well capitalized, and he's crying out. 
It was nothing else in there was shocking at all. We knew they would take, I said last week, if anyone doesn't take credit reserves, sell the company. So the stock's acting fine. It's not necessarily a fine. It's 107. I'm just 107. It's It's basically filled in that gap from late 2020. Fine. In this world, that's fine. All right. But you know what's not fine is that you have an S&P that's down 21% on the year. You have JP Morgan down 30%, Bank America down 31%, down 40% from its all-time highs. Well, not from its all-time highs, from its highs made late last year. So the banks act anything but fine, actually. So you've been telegraphing this for a long time. Yeah. And it happened exactly to the penny, yeah. Carter were saw. Hold on. So why are so they it's not unexpected? So I said, I said these are utility stocks. They're yep. dead money. Yep. There's yep. no reason to own them. What I said was, I don't think the quarter will, on J.P. Morgan specifically be anything. So you got your drift down to the 110, 105, 100. I think you can get to 1.2 times tangible book, which puts it down in the 85 type level. I think tangible Whoa. books around 70, not book. Tangible. So if you paint a worst case scenario, so where do I start buying? Probably sub 100, or but yeah. you're not going to miss anything here by not owning it. I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think it's important. Thing to know. And that's not a good strategy, but whatever. No, you're right. Tangible book in JP Morgan is $69.53. If it were to get down to your level, 1.2, that's levels we haven't seen. I mean, I'm sure I could look it up. I could Google it, as they say. But I guarantee I haven't seen that since I've been doing Fast Money. Now, if we were to get there, what does that say about the broader market? I would submit that if JP Morgan, the stock, were to get down to, let's just say 85 for shits and giggles, that would mean, in my world, the S and P five hundred is probably trading either side of thirty three hundred. I don't agree with you on your top fifteen music list. I couldn't agree with you more on that comment. That's exactly that's my level. That's where I think we're going. I said the third quarter will probably be when we potentially make the lows. And what we're seeing here, which I just want to say, macro is taking over the micro, obviously for sure. This is the hardest trading tape I've ever seen in my career. It's not a coincidence when there's no one having your back that's going to be there to save you. This is it. So. This is going to be a very tough time for the next quarter, and you got to be patient, Dan. You just said, what is it going to say about the market? I would say, what is it saying about the economy, right? If you look at home builders, the major ones, they're all down, again, 30% of the year, much like all these big money center banks. And obviously, from a lending standpoint, they're kind of attached at the hip. But what are they saying about the economy? And so if you're talking about levels in which to buy, it's really funny that we keep talking about tangible book. When we had David Solomon, was it about a month ago, a little more than a month ago, and you were talking about this was a closed door thing for the CME. And when you were quoting the bank's unbook. What did he say to you? He, he was not as concerned of tangible book. Yeah. We had a conversation, but I will tell you, to the penny, he knew where his stock was, yeah. and he obviously knew what tangible and book value of Goldman's. I'm, I was happy to hear that, But what that, did he say? He said, I don't really care about tangible book. I care about full book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I'll play that game as well. I mean, I only use tangible book in relation to where things should be trading vis-a-vis. But if you want to do book value, you can put a multiple on that as well. The bottom line is you're going to come to the same levels in terms of your stock price. Tangible book starts to matter when you have losses because people will doubt the difference, you know, what you're carrying tangibly versus what you're carrying that measure in a form of goodwill or whatever it might be. So it's always when you're looking to the downside, how far can you go use tangible in a growing environment, growing economy, maybe you want to use book, right? You put that money to work. Yeah, and so I guess the only point that I would make is that the way the banks have been leading to the downside, the way that home builders have been leading to the downside, the most economically sensitive groups have been the worst acting groups all year long. Forget all this stuff in the NASDAQ because you still, you look at the NASDAQ and it's only down 31% on the year or something like that. So to me, I think they're telling you everything you need to know. And until we have a recession that is declared, that is official, until we start seeing some of the credit issues that guy, you've been talking about why you've been tracking the high yield index the way you have these banks why would you want to buy these banks unless you have a longer term time horizon and the wherewithal for another 20 percent to the downside 
the entire economy has been based on financial engineering for the last 13 years. That's why the banks matter so much. And you're right, Dan, the banks give a look. What would make J.P. Morgan go to 85 would be a slowing of the economy, credit getting worse, Fed not stopping, further inversion, all the things that are pretty much look like they're happening right here. So we're going to get Wells Fargo and Citigroup when this comes out. That'll be out tomorrow morning. And then on Monday, we'll get Bank America and Goldman Sachs. So over the next three to four days, we're going to get a broad picture of what, a, what does a Wall Street bank look like? What does an internationally exposed bank look like? So you're going to get a piece. And again, I tell people, I listened to the Jamie Dimon call today, and I read through some of the notes just to get an idea. Billion-dollar charge-off. Well, break it down. What is that? So you just got to know what it is. Anyway, back to this is the hardest macro tape that I've seen. You got the euro break in the buck today, right? I don't know where it is right now. You got the 210, U.S. 210 now further inverting somewhere in the 17, 18 basis points, basically cementing that in, obviously. And then I took a look, and I said, okay, if we're going to play this Fed game, over the next couple weeks here in terms of are they going to go 100? Are they going to go 75? And the fact that they told us in the last minutes, they are looking at every data point. Let's break it down a little bit, guys. All right. So CPI, PPI, back-to-back days. A lot of it is based on energy. A lot of it is based on gasoline price. We know that's coming down in July. Here's some other things that are on the horizon here. Retail sales Friday. These are the ones I kind of picked out that I think will be the focus point of the news. Retail sales Friday. The NAHB housing market index on the 18th. On the 20th, by the way, Tesla earnings after the call on the 20th, Dan. You, that, by the way, you're going to be locked in for that. You're going to have a lobster bib on for that right, one. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly, home sales. And then you get, on the 20th, also another round of oil inventories, which, by the way, if you saw gasoline inventories shooting higher, obviously you saw that. And then you get Philly Fed, you get PMI, and then you get the Fed. And by the way, the Fed's on the 27th. The day after the Fed, we're going to see that we're in a recession, which right. was the second quarter CPI number. That's so. exactly right. And it's interesting because earlier this week on Fast Money, we had Jim Bianco on and he started talking about the Fed and what they needed to do. And my question to him was, well, there have been times throughout history where we've had emergency rate cuts mid-meeting, right? Between meetings. And I said, well, it seems like we're in a bit of emergency now with a 9.1% CPI why would they wait to the next meeting? Why wouldn't they just do it? And his answer to me was, well, the optics of, and I never do this on Fast Money, but I said, no, 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 stop. I said, we're well past optics when it comes to the Federal Reserve. They played that card. I'm not interested in hearing about optics. They're well beyond optics. They've screwed the pooch. So is there a chance that they do some mid-meeting rate hike, Danny Moses? I don't think so. But I, I misspoke. It's GDP, sorry, that comes out on the 20th. I think I said CPI. There's so many acronyms floating around out there. But I don't want to go into Fed rant. I want to move on from that. But I will say, is colossal mistake that they made taking forever to tighten the markets. They are, I believe, right now doing the opposite. I mean, what brain surgery does it take to see that with oil prices coming down and gasoline prices specifically, which are a huge component, in the, are down? It's not that difficult. You're, we may have seen the peak number. We might have seen the peak number. Maybe we haven't. Okay. I, I'll agree with you on that. So 9.1 is a ridiculous number. And that's obviously 9.1 before crude oil went from 115 down to current levels. Okay. So let's just play the game. Crude oil's come down, let's say, I don't know, 35%. That fair-ish? Yeah. And let's say that's all, that's going to take inflation number down 35%. That takes us down to a, I don't know, high six handle or so. We're still three times the level they need to be. So crude's done a lot of work for them. There's still a lot of work to be done. They're three years behind the curve. Now I'm arguing with you about the Fed, which is ridiculous. It's crazy. I want to say I want Dan to get in here, but I want to say one other thing. We are now that you throw in the situation in Europe right now with the euro. Okay, the Fed. Granted, it's not their mandate. Let's just use some common sense here. 
what Bernanke did at the time, which whatever, he created this mess, whatever. They did coordinate at the time. Europe's in trouble right now. Yeah, they are. They have inflation, but they're going to have a hard time raising rates right now because they are raising into a much worse economic situation. So what does that mean? It means the euro is going to keep collapsing. It means the dollar is going to keep strengthening. At some point, that does part of the Fed's job, right? The Fed has to start to use common sense. And it's just, they go from being willfully or blissfully ignorant for years to all of a sudden focusing and being myopic on one thing. And I think that there's a middle ground somewhere, Dan. Going back to Jamie Dimon, he was quoted in a paper in Europe prior to earnings basically saying that the Fed is way optimistic that they think inflation is going to get to 4%. So this is something you've been talking about, Guy, even with crude oil down 30% from that February spike. And to your point, Danny, gasoline, we're going to get to through the peak driving season. We've seen the national average go from 5 bucks down to 470 It's likely to be somewhere around 4 by sometime in September, October. Let's be clear on that. I guess the point is, is like, we're still having lockdowns in China. There's headlines about it today. To your point about Europe, it just seems like an unholy mess. Do you want to talk about Mario Draghi um, resigning in Italy? I mean, like it just seems like from one place to the next to the next, it's getting worse there. So it's kind of a hard one. I just don't see our stock market bottoming. I don't see the dollar coming in meaningfully. I don't see crude oil and a lot of these commodities getting back on the horse either in a global recession. So it goes back to a sort of stagflationary environment. So what you're saying, Dan, in a lot of ways is, to quote the great Allman Brothers, in 1994, I think the Allman Brothers released a studio album, Where It All Begins. One of the great songs on that album is no one left to run with anymore. Everybody wants to know, Danny, where Jimmy has gone. He left home. I'm tired of, right? right. Yep. I mean, you know the line, oh, right? Oh, did you listen? You were off last week. Did you listen? Danny and I had a little. You did a little Allman Brothers thing? No, we went back and forth on, on, speaking of no one left to run with, what do you buy? Well, that's my point. Because what Danny's do you buy? Gold, There's nobody left to run with. What are you doing Danny's here? Danny's gold just made a new 52-week low today. Oh, it's so horrible, the gold. I got it. I still take it over everything else. All right. Can I say one other thing? You don't need to ask permission, okay? Okay. You just well, do Well, I feel your like thing. Dan will say, okay, wonky man, they're really, oh, listen just hit pause fast forward okay that's first of all that's patently false again people want to hear what you say as wonky as you are you've been right you've been spot on all this wonky shit that makes people's eyes glaze over a year ago now but he's locked into and oh by the way people on network television are talking about the shit that you brought up a year ago now it's in everybody's vernacular i heard the other day by the way now i'm on a bit of a rant mike santolio i happen to like he's on tv all fucking day by the way it's like they better be paying him a shitload of money because they run him into the fucking ground number one number two he actually said you know what's really interesting here joe or whomever Bond volatility. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Now you're talking about bond and currency volatility? Exactly. So, yeah, thank you. So my answer to you is yes. Part of that bond volatility. Here's what we're going to get over the next. You're going to read about this in the next coming weeks, okay? So everyone, both on the consumer and on the commercial side, have lines of credit that they draw on. They use it. I guarantee they've been drawn in the last Mm -hmm. few months. Well, a lot of these things have minimum percentages on them. Let's take the consumer, for instance. Say you have a line of credit. You're drawing against one of your assets. Normally, it's... LIBOR plus this, floor of 3%. You didn't have to worry about getting the 3% moving because the Fed had kept rates low, which keeps prime, whatever you're based upon. Look, I'm telling you right now, the mailings that went out this last month when the Fed made their last move that they did, the 75 basis point move, there's a new sheriff in town and it's 3.6, it's 3.8. They're going again, it's going to be 5%. So any lines of credit personal, and that's going to start to eat 
into the wallets in corporate and consumer America. Go. You had a real opportunity to channel your inner Eddie Murphy and do, there's a new sheriff in town. Reggie Hammond. And his name is God. Reggie Hammond. But you didn't do I it. didn't do it. You shit the bed there and you can't go back and do it. I'm sorry. Is that in your top 15 movies, 48 hours? No, but it's a great, it's in one of my, it's in my top five Eddie Murphy movies. Eddie Murphy's a fucking genius and I'm cursing a lot this time because I am fired up. He could read the phone book and I would watch him do it because he's the funniest man, in my opinion, in the last 40 years. Dan Nathan, please. Danny's looking at me. See, you can't see this. I'm just folks. entertained. Keep going. No, guys. don't Dan, be entertained. Do I entertain you? I mean, the other thing which no one wants to talk about, and again, the Fed will ignore. And you mentioned China's in lockdown. COVID's coming back here. This sucks. Like I, I know no one's talk about it. I, I get it. You could ignore it all you want, but I have friends that are now getting it again that are sick, and they'll be okay. Hopefully, everybody okay. But I think it's something to think about also as we end towards. You want to talk about slowing, you know, economy, not to belittle it or put it in any because it's it's tragic and of its own but it's happening again and whether because we've been through the booster cycle and we're we've lost our ability to i don't know but it's something else that's going to be out there and that's going to be rearing its head so hate to talk about it but it is savita Submaranian. she does a great job she's been on fast money myriad of times we should actually have her on this podcast she made news this week because she took her target for the S&P down to 3,600. Now, Danny, you say this all the time, and I want you to opine a bit. If you're bullish, if you have a 5,000 price target in the S&P and it doesn't get there, there are no ramifications in this world for being bullish and wrong. But God forbid, if you're bearish, and almost by definition, a 3,600 price target in the S&P is bearish, there are ramifications for that. So she knows that. She's not dumb, yet she did it anyway, which to me speaks volumes, Danny Moses. Yeah, I think, well, listen, you want to see everyone do that, then you know it's probably time to buy. Yeah. But yeah, I think the risk reward of saying like that is you got to be differentiator. She's brilliant. I mean, I think she does her work. I don't think she randomly throws stuff at a wall like many other strategists that are out there, maybe some that we've had potentially on the show at times. But listen, there's thought that goes into it. Again, it is so hard right now to figure out what, this is the hardest market to trade because what are the inputs going to be? You just it, Things are moving like that too hard. So again, you're going to get a lot of this. People are coming in, bringing price targets in on stocks, bringing S&P targets lower and so forth. And that's when you, what you want to see in order to get some type of comfort level. But this is not going to be easy. So on June 14th, it was a Wednesday, I believe. That was the Fed meeting. That's Jerome Powell walked off stage. And oh, by the way, if you're a millennial and you think about buying a home, you might want to reconsider it. We can talk about that if you want, because he's clearly trying to talk down to housing. But without question, housing is something that's front and center on their radar screen. I mean, he just didn't drop that to drop it. But that day, the market rallied. I thought on Fast Money that night, and I talked about it on our podcast, I said there's a very good chance we have this counter-trend rally back to 4,100 in the S&P 500. I think the S&P was like 3,600 and change that day. We got up to 3,955-ish, and here we are. So my question, I guess, is, was that the rally? And are we sort of almost, is it fait accompli, as the French say, Dan, that we're going to go down to this 3,200 that you've been talking about now for months? I mean, listen, we've been talking about on the pod here, the rallies that we've seen, the counter trend rallies off of lows, they just keep getting weaker and weaker. And the one that we had off of the May low was weaker than the one we had off of March. And the June one was weaker than the May. So here we are, we're limping into earnings season. I always kind of want to be careful with the banks here. When you have so much negative sentiment, we've talked about how they were leading to the downside. And then you 
get that bad result and poor guidance. And look at this right now, JP Morgan hasn't rallied a whole heck of a lot off the lows as we go into the close on Thursday. There's 30 minutes left. It's down three and a half percent. It was down maybe 5% of the lows, but Morgan Stanley, which also had supposedly a difficult quarter and okay guidance is basically unchanged on the day. So it's recovered from being down three or 4%. So the idea of pressing all of this negative sentiment and the bad news that we know that's here is probably a bad trade, if you will. And I'll just mention this also, that overnight, Taiwan Semi, right, they reported, it was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, it was a decent enough, but they talked about, listen, the demand is pretty good, but we're also seeing an inventory situation here. And that would be the backside of this whole stagflationary thing. If we see inventories build in large pockets, that would be a real problem for growth going forward. So to me, I think we've been talking one thing very specifically. We need capitulation like we saw strategists take down their targets for the broad market, but we also need to see analysts bring down their S&P earnings estimates. And that has not happened yet. I came in very hot today and Amanda Diaz, our crack producer, asked me to do something and I didn't do it. I'll do it now at this point of the On The Tape podcast. Leave us a review. If you like what you've heard, if you don't like what you've heard, if you think I'm a Johnson, if you think Danny is the sexiest man in the history of the United States, if you think Dan Nathan was a marginal lacrosse player, if you think anything, please leave us a review. It helps us. It helps me to sort of formulate and think about the show. It helps Dan Nathan. It helps Danny Moses. So please, folks, leave a review. Danny Moses. So there's a generation of investors, again, we'll say that have only known the Fed has had your back. These are natural market forces at work, which are coming at people from all sides. By the way, that's okay. That's fine. That's the way it should be. We are in the hurricane in that regard to what Jamie Dimon was. Maybe not an economic hurricane, but we're in a – stuff's flying everywhere. And you have analysts that are literally looking up correlations to yen, euro. What does that mean? They've never had to do that in the history of their careers, had to look at correlations, dollar, yen. And by the way, I'm not trying to be an alarmist here. We're in July right now. It's sort of warm outside pretty sure it's warm in Europe. It ain't going to be warm four or five months from now. And I hate to say this. I happen to think I'm true. There are people in Europe, they're going to have to decide whether they want to heat their homes or eat. It's that binary. And we're going to be talking about that in October, November of this year. Just stay tuned, sports fans. I totally agree. And let me go back to Dan's point about how we kind of stair-step down to 32 or 3,300. It's almost in the worst kind of way. Because if it doesn't happen on a massive capitulation moment, like a down 15, 20 in in a day or two, what's happening is we're getting these Rally 2 to 3%, sell off 7 over a period of 5 seven. Those are the worst kind because what people are doing is they're saying, all right, I'm back in, I'm, I'm out. They're buying back at kind of the highs, they're selling at lows. You're and unfortunately, that's painful. And unfortunately, that's what I see that's occurring. Again, we can move on from this, but I'll say it's the quality and your time frame has to change. It's not about a week, a month, or even a quarter. I think people start to think about really investing as opposed to trading. And I think there is an investable market always. We have to speak about... Tesla because it wouldn't be an on-the-tape podcast if we didn't speak about Tesla. Dan has known me long enough to think I'm out of my mind, and I'm sure Danny Moses has known me long enough to think I sort of like the way Guy Adami thinks. And I've said this before, and people have looked at me cross-eyed, but now I'm saying to myself, holy shit, I think I've been right all along. Why do I say this? Give me a second, and I'll let you know. Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, he's not on Twitter. What is something called what? Truth Social. Truth. Say it with a little enthusiasm. He's on something called Truth Social. And he tweeted this the other day, and or whatever. It's not a tweet on Truth. He truthed it. He truthed this the other day. And I'm going to read it. 
When Elon Musk came to the White House asking me for help on all of his many subsidized projects, whether it's electric cars that don't drive long enough, driverless cars that crash, or rocket ships to nowhere, which is actually pretty funny, without which subsidies he'd be worthless, and telling me how he was a big Trump fan and Republican, I could have had him said, quote, Drop to your knees and beg, and he would have done it. That's a tweet or a truth from Donald Trump. Now, go ahead, Danny. Say a few things, because I'm going to get into this in a minute. Well, I mean, you know, which is funny, two of my least favorite people on planet Earth, and they're actually saying things that I agree with them about both the people, which is it's really hard. I don't know what the enemy of your enemy is. I, I don't even know what the— it's crazy, what, right? What, yeah, what the thing is. But what it does tell me is we went back and wondered, because I apologize, Dan, for taking you down this— it, this Tesla hole over the last year and a half. And I, I know you've always known the company at interest, but I think being around me has, it's going to cause you some anguish, but we'll, we're going to be right eventually. But now you look back, he was in the white house. We know in 2017, you know, 2018, he's been there various times and he was playing the game that he needed to play. We went back and say he was protected. He was protected. That was always the well, guy has oh, actually been saying that for four years. So now, now you're on to something. Now we're looking at each other. Like we're both crazy and maybe we are, no, we're not. Because I said this, when this happened, I actually stopped in my tracks and said, whoa, Joe Kernan, who goes to Davos every year, Joe Kernan from Squawk Box in the morning, 6 to 9 a.m., he was in Davos, Switzerland. He was interviewing then-President Trump, and he asked him a number of questions, and I'll say this, it's because it's sort of funny, but after he asked him what your favorite color is, Mr. President, he said, I want to play word association. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm pretty close. My memory is still pretty good. And he said, Elon Musk. And Trump said, Elon Musk, one of our brilliant people here. Genius. He one of our geniuses. We have to protect our geniuses. The man that invented the wheel, the guy that invented electricity. And then he said something to the effect of, we did a lot for him. A lot of my people say how much trouble they were in, and we did a lot for them. They're going to do a lot for us. And I will tell you, I heard that. I'm like, holy shit. Because one of the things that was going on, SEC investigation, the stock was under pressure. I will tell you, go back and look. The stock never ticked lower from that point on. And I said it on a show. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck's going on here, people. But he's got air cover, he being Elon Musk. Well, you know what? That air cover is now left. And I'm telling you, just wait and see. Trump will put out another truth talking about all the things they did for Tesla in the stock. And people are going to say, whoa, that's some crazy shit. So this Tesla chapter in the book, this is still going to continue on, Danny Moses. Well, let's go over some of the quotes. You think I'm I, crazy? I, no, I listen, I, what do you mean? I know it was January 2020 because I took, I said, I should never be short the stock again. And I said, nah, I, that can't be right. Fundamentals will matter. They'll play out. I mean, so anyway, they're both narcissists. They both had a relationship or knowledge of with Jeffrey Epstein, right? Whatever, right? So they have that in common. Congratulations, guys. They both have no regard for the law. They both will do whatever they can to obviously get their way. They both bully and intimidate wherever they can, and they never get stopped. They just kept going on. But here are the quotes, right? You did some of the quotes. Let me go back over them, which I agree with all of them. So Musk about Trump. Bull in a china shop. He should hang up his hat and sail into the sunset. Okay. Old man staring at a cloud. He put out that meme in The Simpsons. Okay, I agree with all that. Trump on Musk, right? You just said... He makes driverless cars that crash. Couldn't agree with him more. Rocket ships to nowhere. Agree. He says, I could have said drop your knees and bag and he would have done it. And the best part is that he would have failed without government subsidies. 
I've never agreed with these two guys ever. And I agree with both of them about what they're saying to each other, Dan. Just hand me a bucket of popcorn and I'll sit here and, and watch. Well, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be popcorn worthy. But I'll say this. I actually think along with being worthy of sitting and eating popcorn, by the way, I like that cheddar coated popcorn, but it's going to be stock moving as well. Yeah. So the timing, I think, of this little kind of truth tweet thing back and forth is pretty interesting because a couple of weeks ago, if you guys remember on what Danny would call was a Friday afternoon dirty. Friday night the, dirty. Friday night dirty, where they announced that three for one stock split. They also announced that Larry Ellison was going to be leaving the board of Tesla. And what's interesting about that is Larry Ellison's a big MAGA asshole. He's a huge Trump supporter. He was. Remember Trump? Trump almost delivered him, almost delivered Oracle TikTok by decree. And then he said, and I want a piece of it. Remember that? Okay. All right. So then Larry Ellison quietly leaves Elon's board because he basically knows that Elon and Trump are about to go to war with each other. So there's just so much going on right here. And then just to me, the other thing that no one's even talking about because Elon's too busy having babies and truth in this and doing that or whatever, is that they're head of AI, of the self-driving thing, the thing that's actually the reason why these dreamers who own the stock think it's worth $700 billion. He leaves the company with no concrete plans to do anything on the doorstep of them introducing level four full self-driving. By the way, I happen to think Vinny and Porter were with us when this thing dropped. And oh, by the way, we you were say, on a spaces that we were on a spaces. Yeah. Why, that's right. We were on a spaces together. And by the way, you say Vinny and Porter. Well, you know who they are. And by the way, they just dropped another investor. They're up 85 percent. Oh, you're on their list now. That's not a fucking typo. Eighty five percent. So good for them. It makes you know what? It makes me really happy. And I almost want to root for the Mets when I see something like that. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention it. Yeah. Well, Dan, Larry Ellison, that was Friday night, June 10th. Okay, where that news came out. Three for one. Yay. Oh, yeah. Ellison's leaving. No big deal. So it turns out, as we saw today in the Wall Street Journal, that the SEC had made an inquiry into, hey, this is 8K type stuff. So for everyone out there, an 8K is when you're a public company and you say something that can be deemed to be market moving and you do say it without putting out the proper form. Anyway, Musk has done that forever, but they decided to call him out on it as it relates to his intent on Twitter because he's affecting a $30, $40 billion company at the same time, the shareholders and everything. So that happened prior to June 7th. And on June 7th, the lawyers that represent Musk sent back, we will continue to be mindful of what we say. And now they're coming back again. So none of this is a coincidence, right? This is all kind of leading up. So Dan, before you opine here, I want to say something. I should have stood by my investment philosophy on Tesla the same way I did Carvana. I was short some Carvana, but I really loaded up at 80. Yeah. Because once it broke and it became clear that it wasn't resting on fundamentals of which Tesla does. It's at 20 right now, people. So- Tesla probably is a better, I know this sounds obscene, is it probably a better short at 300 than it is at 700 because what will make it move from seven to three is the break in kind of the cult nature of this name. All right, so question for you, Danny, because you've been following this story very closely and I was following it more as a talking head for years and now I got a little skin in the game and it just hurts. It just hurts. <laughs> uh, but, but, but my question to you here is that if Elon Musk, okay, the CEO of Tesla, okay, one of the largest market cap companies in the world, if a Delaware court forces him to buy Twitter for $44 billion, which he had agreed to do, and let's say he doesn't do it, and then there's some sort of like major legal action, not by Twitter and their shareholders, but by the government, what does that mean for his standing as the CEO of Tesla? Dan, he's done 
I could name a dozen things already that would basically preclude him from being a CEO. No, I know, but of wouldn't that but, make him unsuitable? Like, wouldn't any normal board have to kick his ass out of the company? This is the problem with the regulators, with the SEC and everybody else, which back to where we started with this 15 minutes ago, whatever it's been, has been because it was protected or whatever got away with so much that there was a belief in the, quote, system that he'll never get taken down, that nothing will. And always, by the way, it happens when you finally drop your guard and you realize, I'm not even paying attention to it because nothing can happen. I agree with you, Dan. He's not fit to be CEO. He should have stepped down long ago. His board is nowhere. They're just there. As so if he the, steps down tomorrow, let's just say hypothetically, there's a filing and he's just going to be the largest 550. shareholder. 550. Stock straight to 550? Even, oh, way below 550. Really? So all of his disciples leave, basically, like the shareholders. They're, they're asterisk. Like, they're, they're like, you know what an asterisk is on the Bloomberg in the morning? Roger Maris knows what one was because they put an asterisk next to his name 61. in 1961, which was complete bullshit because Roger Maris was legit. Now all these assholes. You think it's a straight in, shot? Oh, Dan just wants five, to go right past straight, baseball. Straight shot to 500. I don't think it opens that day. To be honest, you want my honesty. I don't think the stock opens that day. I mean, I think then it's, so. I don't know if you want to make that call. If you make that call, then you should feel pretty good about your short. But I guess the point that I'm trying to get to is something very simple, is that when he got in trouble with the SEC a few years ago, he had to pay a $20 million fine. He had to stop tweeting. He had board approval of his tweets. He had to relinquish his chairman of the board. So what if he's kicked off the board and he has to step down and then think about all of the loans, all of the the stock, right, that he has margin with all these banks all over the U.S. Dan, Dan, I can tell you exactly what happens if all the things you're saying play out. Every firm downgrades the stock. Tesla's at 100 bucks, 150 and everyone runs and hides because there's no more fees to get. And I know we find ourselves talking about the stock all the time, but it's too good because it represents pretty much everything that's going on right now in the markets and the capital markets specifically. So maybe something happens. Maybe there's a time when we get back on this podcast one day and do a postmortem on it. And I look forward to that time. And just in general, guys, a postmortem on this episode is fired up. You guys were too. And I'll tell you who I'm going to get more fired up because when we come back, we have the pleasure of sitting down with New York Times bestselling author, Jason Kander, who has a new book called Invisible Storm, The Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. 
Jason Kander, a former Army captain who served in Afghanistan, was the first millennial ever elected to a statewide office. He is the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project, a nonprofit organization, and host of Majority 54, a popular political podcast. Jason's first book, Outside the Wire, was a New York Times bestseller, An Invisible Storm, a Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD, will be a New York Times bestseller. Jason joins us here on the tape. Jason, first of all, thank you for your book. More importantly, thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, Guy. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be with you all. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of things, I'm going to put out a date to you. I want to see how good you are. July 24th, 1983, Bronx, New York. Mean anything to you? Uh, it's the Pine Tar game. That is the Pine Tar game where George Brett lost his mind. <laughs> By the way, I love George Brett. He owned the Yankees. You're a huge Kansas City Royal fan. I will tell you, my favorite Royal of all time was the great Amos Otis. Yours? George Brett, but I've hung out with Amos Otis. And an incredibly awesome guy, tells great stories about playing back then. Look, my son wears number five on the Little League team I coach. The only reason I don't wear number five on my over 30 wood bat baseball team that I play on is because the manager of the team was like, we retired number five in the Kansas City League. You're not allowed to wear it. I'm a George Brett guy. I got to tell you something. When the Royals came to town, that was must watch. And he absolutely owned the Yankees, but he owned everybody else as well. And those Royal Yankees series back in the day were tremendous. I'm looking forward to the day where the Royals get back to where they should be because it's a very proud franchise, but we're not there yet. Anyway, that's my contribution to this. Dan, why don't you explain to the folks how you two met? Jason, I don't know if you recall this, but you and I, it was February 2020. We were on the set. We were about to do Stephanie Rule's show. I think it was a 9 a.m. show in the morning. She is now obviously on the 11th hour, and we were both big fans of hers. But it was kind of interesting for me is that Guy and I, we meet a lot of people in green rooms for our CNBC show. I was like, oh, I know this guy. You, You ran for Senate in 2016, a very close race in a very, very important election year. I started listening to your podcast, Majority 54. You had a lot of very astute, I would say, political takes on the podcast. And reading this book, Invisible Storm, which you sent me, you reached out, we were chatting about it and everything like that. It was really interesting because there's really two stories going on here. Jason Kander in his 20s and going to American and being a Georgetown Law and marrying your basically your high school sweetheart, just the aspirations that you had also as a patriot and wanting to serve your country and being the ROTC while you were in law school. Just think about that. And then the other path of the story is like after you're serving and coming back and all your political aspirations. So talk to us a little bit about it because there are two stories here. They obviously come together in a very harsh sort of reality, but it really is an uplifting story when you come out of it too. Well, first of all, thanks. I really appreciate that. And before I even get into it, Dan, like I want to go back and reference the day we met because I remember that extremely well. And I'm curious if you experienced it the way I did, which was everybody kind of remembers where they were when it became clear to them what COVID was really going to look like. For me, my moment was we were live on MSNBC when I don't remember the name of the guy because the third panelist for us was, I think, an epidemiologist. And he was explaining, and this was February, so it was before everything shut down. He was explaining what it was going to be like. And I remember looking at you and looking at Stephanie, and we're all like, holy hell, 
That's actually a really interesting point. So the guy's name was Matt McCarthy, and he was a epidemiologist in a hospital here in New York. And he and I stuck around. I think we all chatted a little bit afterwards. I actually said to him, I gave him a little advice. I said, dude, you're coming in really hot right now. And I was like, have you checked with your hospital about whether or not, you know what I mean? And he actually did a lot of media. He started coming on CNBC. I introduced him to a couple of producers, and then he stopped altogether. And the one thing I'll just say about that moment is thinking back now is, Guy and I were doing Fast Money on CNBC. Now, sadly, we often have to look at whatever is going on in the world through the lens of the stock market. That's what we're there to do. And we had been saying for a good part of January and February that, hey, listen, man, cities larger than any in the U.S. in China have been shut down. And we were taking it very seriously at the time. And that was a moment in time. And I remember that conversation very closely. To your original question, and actually it fits in well with what we're talking about here, which is the country's been through a trauma. I mean, it's not just me. Like this book is, it is about the coming of age tale of pursuing the presidency while you have an undiagnosed, untreated, unacknowledged psychological disorder. So for listeners, if you've heard that one before, you know, just keep going, but you probably haven't. But for me, it's about more than that. I mean, it's my story and it's about going to therapy and achieving what I refer to as post-traumatic growth. But I feel like I spent so much time trying to belittle my trauma in order to diminish it and think that would make it go away. And I meet, particularly on this book tour, I meet so many people who start conversations with me. And it's a conversation where they want to tell me how they related to the book and what it did for them. But they'll start with, I wasn't in the military or I didn't go to war. Or, and I'm always like, hey, that actually has nothing to do with it. I wrote this book because pretty much everybody at some point in their life has some sort of trauma. And then it's a question of how do you deal with it? And I had learned a lot. I have learned a lot through therapy. And that's really what I wanted to offer with the book. Let's talk about this a little bit, because what was the phrase you just used this post post-traumatic growth growth? And you had been moving towards, you just mentioned this kind of sequence in the book when you're talking about some of your early diagnoses and trying to figure out what you are, you were always moving hard towards something, right? And so it just seemed like whether it was school, whether it was sports, whether it was these campaigns, when you got back from the military, what was the thing that triggered you in a way to notice that there was some common thread to the way that you were working through every sort of challenge that you had and you were going 100 miles an hour. But ultimately, it seems like there was a period after you'd won a couple campaigns, but you were going for the big one, right? Was it something about that 2016 campaign running for Senate that really kind of changed it and really made you recognize that there was something under the surface that you really had to address? I knew that what I was experiencing was not what other people were experiencing, but I always had a story I could tell myself. And that story was deeply seated in a belief that I had. That belief was that what I did was no big deal in the military. And there's a reason for that. And that is that there's a very necessary form of brainwashing that the military does. I say necessary because I'm not knocking it. And what it does is they tell you from the moment you get there to your entire throughout your service that what you're doing is no big deal. It's necessary because if they didn't do that, like with me as an intelligence officer, I'm not going to be able to keep going into rooms with people who might want to kill me to gain information and bring it back. And other folks can't keep conducting patrols and so you have to believe that what you're doing is not that big of a deal. The problem is, is that when you get out, nobody flips that switch off. Nobody says, actually, that was a, quite a big deal. And so with me, I'm going through all this time where I'm having night terrors. I feel like I'm in danger all the time. I'm having really negative feelings about myself, 
really a lot of self-loathing. But I'm thinking, well, it can't be from Afghanistan because I have it on good authority that what I did was no big deal. And even if I have an inkling that it could be from Afghanistan, or if I even at some level kind of know, I can't acknowledge it because that feels like stolen valor. That feels like I'm claiming the same mantle as friends of mine who got shot and things like that. So the whole time I'm telling myself that that's not the case, but I also recognize that other people aren't stocking their house with a gun at night and other people seem to sleep through the night and they aren't having nightmares about being kidnapped, which was my greatest concern as an intelligence officer. So I knew that, but I was kind of at war with myself over it. And I started to gradually acknowledge it when during my Senate campaign, I remember having this constant feeling of, I just got to keep going. I know that when I'm going, I'm okay. Now, what I didn't understand at that point was, it's not the going that made me feel good. It's the not being with my own thoughts. It's the not being with intrusive memories and disruptive emotions. So then by the time I'm pretty much running for president in 2018, I'm doing that soft, I'm going to run, but I can't legally say it out loud thing, but I'm going to 46 states and going to Iowa and New Hampshire all the time. I'm now at that point kind of acknowledging to myself, but not saying out loud to anybody that I'm like any other addict, that I'm stringing endorphin highs from the campaign trail and from like career successes together. And if I can keep them closer together or make the highs high enough to last, then I'm okay. And it was the moment where I gave the biggest speech in my career in New Hampshire, gave the keynote, carried on national television. It was really the, okay, I'm going to run speech. And it went great. But the endorphin high didn't last. I mean, by the morning, I felt empty. And that was the first time that I was like, something's seriously wrong. You know, people say, well, why would you run for president? The reality is, President Obama pulled you aside. You had almost a two-hour conversation, I think, with him where he encouraged you to do exactly that. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Even before I get to that, I got to explain that I kind of hit this weird wind pocket in American culture. I mean, a lot of this is serendipity, right? Like, I run for the U.S. Senate in 2016. Trump wins my state by more than he won Mississippi. So my party lost by 19 points in my state. I almost won. I lost by 2.8. So everybody's looking at me going, well, how'd you do that? You're a progressive. How'd you get all these Trump voters to vote for you? That kind of started it. And then so I'm in this wind pocket and I'm getting mentorship from afar from President Obama. I'm getting mentorship from other people. I'm starting to get invited. Everybody at that point was like, what do we do from here? People were grasping for leadership. I think I described it in the book as a, it was like waking up from nuclear annihilation, coming out of the bunker, being super down, but then trying to get energized about the fact that the other five survivors were like, we think maybe you're in charge. And so that's where I was. And then I was already pretty seriously hustling to put myself in a position to where I could run, but I wasn't sure that I should be. I had been a secretary of state of Missouri. So I had a little bit of imposter syndrome about it. But yeah, President Obama pretty well summoned me to come and see him in Washington. We had this great conversation where it wasn't like he was like, you're the guy, you should run. But he did say to me, after kind of rolling through all the potential disadvantages of being somebody who not enough people knew yet, he did say that you have what I had, like you're the natural. And my self-esteem was always suffering because of PTSD. My self-confidence never really flagged, but that helped it. I'll tell you, somebody whose self-confidence clearly doesn't lag, and I'm not asking you to play politics here, but Eric Greitens, who also has written a book, I know some SEALs that know him as well. I won't get into their thoughts about him, but you think about how polarized we become when I see some of the ads that he's recently run it's shocking, actually, when you see that. And again, I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this 
have seen those advertisements. What does that make you feel like? I'm worried about it. I live in this state. And so Eric Greitens, I'll give you some insight on Eric Greitens. I've known Eric Greitens a decently long time by political standards, I guess, because we were both existing in the world of democratic veterans who were active in politics around, I don't know, 20 13, 14. So everybody was saying to him, do you know Jason Kander? And everybody's saying to me, you must know Eric Greitens. He lived in St. Louis. I lived in Kansas City. And he had started the Mission Continues, which to its credit is a really valuable veteran serving organization. So I met Eric, liked him. We got along very well. I got involved with Mission Continues. I'm not a super rich guy, but I became one of many lower level donors to it. And I also was hearing at the time that Eric was meeting with the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, that he was figuring out which Democratic congressional or which congressional seat he was going to run for as a Democrat. I had plenty of friends in the Democratic Party who he had been to their events and endorsed them. He had driven 18 hours with the former Democratic governor of Missouri to Denver to see President Obama accept the Democratic nomination in 2008. And then all of a sudden in 2016, He decides he's a really, really right-wing Republican, which was a big surprise to a lot of us, and announces for governor. I say all this with the acknowledgement that him disingenuously changing his politics on a dime is like 20th on the list of really, really concerning things that this guy has done. And for people who are curious, they can look that up if they don't know. But that's my personal experience with him. And look, people change their minds. They change their views about stuff. This dude went from pretty far left to pretty far right, like overnight. And frankly, that combined with the other stuff he's done, it's sociopathic behavior. Like he is a dangerous, frightening dude. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You just use the expression imposter syndrome. And one of the themes throughout the book, and when you're trying to deal with this PTSD is really, you had this guilt. You just mentioned you were an army intel guy. You were active for a year and a half, but you were only in Afghanistan for four months. You were not on combat patrols, but you were in very dangerous situations. So that combination of you feeling guilt about coming back and not serving in Afghanistan the way way a lot of your fellow soldiers were and feeling this, whatever you were feeling after the fact, you felt like you didn't deserve to do that, right? You weren't in the trenches the way a lot of these other soldiers who've had been maimed and hurt and obviously even died. Talk to us a little bit about that because it seemed to be, you got back at some point in the mid to late aughts and a lot of the work that you did, whether it be from a political standpoint or whatever, is just running away from all of that. And so you're running right towards that situation though, where all of a sudden you find Find yourself in the biggest political stage, right? 10 years after getting back to the US, but still feeling you're not deserving of it. I had this sort of mirage out in front of me of redemption that if I can just do this, I'll feel like I did enough. And it's just like you said, in my mind, when I went over, combat was what you see in the movie Black Hawk Down. That's what combat is. And so I came home having been in, in these situations that at the time I understood were exhilarating and everything, but I hadn't fired my weapon. And I felt like, well, that's not combat. And I told myself that for a decade. And it wasn't until I was sitting down with a clinical social worker at the VA after deciding to get help where she said to me, she was like, let me get this straight. First, she asked, she said, your friends who were in firefights, what did they say about what you did over there? And I said, well, look, they always say they don't know if they could have done the job I did. They're being nice. And she's like, look, they're not. She was like, you went to the most dangerous place on the planet. And then you were basically alone, you and a translator for hours at a time, totally vulnerable meeting with people who you couldn't know whether they were setting a trap for you or not. And there was nobody knew where you were. So nobody was coming to save you. She's like, 
that's combat. You're a combat veteran. That's traumatic. And it was like when she said it back to me that way, I could see it almost as if somebody was, you know, and I realized like if I met somebody and they told me their deployment and they told me that I'd be like, yeah, that's pretty legit. But to me, the takeaway from all that is that all of us are going through life in America. You don't have to be a combat veteran. It could be a bad divorce, a car accident, something happened in your childhood or losing a loved one, watching the news. I mean, there's so many different ways to sustain trauma now. And we all do what I did for 10 years, which is say it's no big deal. Now, I think what complicates that is there's a big part of the American myth that pushed me to be charging ahead and going to the next hill the whole time. And that is what I think of as like the redemption myth. And the best example I can think of right now is Top Gun. I love both Top Gun movies. My son and I went to see Top Gun Maverick with my dad and my brother. We'll go again. So I'm not knocking them. But the Top Gun structure is Goose dies. And then Viper walks in and delivers the news that Goose died and says, hey, you got to get past it. And then what happens next in the third act? He goes and he fights some bad guys. He kills some bad guys. And then he's good. He throws Goose's dog tags off the deck and he gets the girl and he's fine. That story is repeated over and over and over again in our culture. And it leads us to believe that, yes, trauma is real. But the way you conquer trauma is not through therapy. It's not through that kind of work. You conquer trauma through singular acts of redemptive heroism. And I look back now and I think that's what I was doing. I felt deeply that I had not done enough as a member of the service. And so I was just trying to redeem myself by just hollowing myself out, giving myself completely over to my career and then thinking ultimately, you know, I'll save the world. But now I look back and I'm like, to use another movie reference, I could have been Bill Pullman's character in Independence Day. I could have gotten elected president and flown a combat mission to defeat an alien invading force. And I think I still would have been like, I haven't done enough. And what I really needed was to go to therapy. Problem with that, of course, being Randy Quaid's out of his fucking mind. But anyway, I digress. Danny, I know you got some thoughts. Well, Randy Quaid had PTSD from being abducted by aliens. So it actually is a perfect little button on the analogy. Jason, hi, Danny Moses here. Nice to meet you. But the person that actually met you first in person was my sister, Lynn Garfinkel. She met you in Ohio, I guess, at a campaign event in 2018 for Kathleen Clyde. And I've been hearing about you ever since. And about six weeks ago, she says to me, you really got to start tracking this guy, Jason Kander. He's coming out with this book. I mean, what he's done in the community is incredible. And her and her husband, Michael, are in Boulder, where Dan's brother is, by the way. And in Longmont, one of the VCP locations, they donate time and resources to it, and they swear by it. So she wanted to say hello. Yeah, absolutely. Tori said thanks. Jason, I know you're spending your time on a lot of different things, but I know one of the things that's near and dear to your heart is the Veterans Community Project, VCP, which you credit really with helping you, happen to be located in Kansas City, and now you're president, I guess, of National Expansion. Can you just explain that organization? It's really cool. I looked into it after I read the book. I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, thanks, Danny. I appreciate the question. So Veterans Community Project, we do two major things. One, we fight the suicide epidemic among veterans and generally serve veterans by operating walk-in clinics, what we call outreach centers for any veteran to come in and get any service. And we just basically leverage the goodwill and deep reservoir of support in the community to provide that. So everything from what I got help with, which was expediting my paperwork at the VA to emergency assistance loans for folks who might be about to be homeless if they don't get a little help with rent to counseling to everything. But then what we're much better known for is the other part of our work, which is the residential side, which is to say we build villages of tiny houses 
for homeless veterans, and we provide wraparound case management services to transition homeless veterans back into being permanently and independently housed. We do it with an 85% success rate, which is pretty well unheard of in this space. And the reason that we're able to do that is we approach it in a really unique way, which is to say we sort of restart the military to civilian transition back at day one. And our villages, they feel and look a lot like active duty housing. So when you come in, it's like we're putting you back in the world that you were most recently stable and successful. And then over the course of your time with us, we gradually transition you into being fully prepared for civilian life. And it's the best civilian job I've ever had. My job is, as you said, president of national expansion. And in the last three years, we've been able to make a lot of progress. We're now in the Denver area, in Longmont, in Boulder County, as you mentioned. We are also building in St. Louis and in Sioux Falls. We've bought land now in Oklahoma City and are going there. And then we're wanting to spread elsewhere after that. All of my royalties from this book actually go to Veterans Community Project. One thing that was really clear in the book is that your coming across VCP was really an important part about your recovery from this PTSD. And I want to take a step back, though, and really talk about the therapy and the moment in which you realized that you needed to go into therapy. It's very interesting that you talk about going straight to the VA and the difficulty of actually getting the sort of therapy that you needed, given how far away you were from your active duty commitment. And you mentioned that that has changed a bit, but speak to us a little bit about the experience with the VA. And also, I'm sure you're never done with the sort of therapy, trying to attack the sort of issues that were kind of under the surface for a very long time and really disrupted your life for a bit. But it seems like the way you come out of this thing, you're doing really well, but you're also at a point you were kind of skeptical of how the short amount of time that you were actually in therapy, which might speak to how well of treatment that you got from the VA. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It was all really colored for me by the fact that when you think about it, the depictions of people who have gone to treatment for PTSD and then gone on with their lives and done and done well with it, you just can't think of them. Nobody ever shows that on TV or in movies, but it's super common. There's people walking all around us all the time who've had trauma, went to therapy and went back to their life and they manage PTSD. You don't have any idea about it. Well, I didn't know that. And so I knew that I wanted to go to the VA because I knew that I wanted to uh, sit across from somebody who talk to people like me all the time. And I realized that because the way that I really decided that I definitely needed help was uh, things got really bad and really dark and um, I'd become somewhat suicidal. I was having suicidal thoughts. This is a good moment to pause and say for people listening, the book has also got a lot of jokes. There's a lot of levity. You might not be able to tell from the way I'm talking about it now, but uh, I wanted to make sure it's very readable. <laughs> so it's fun to read, believe it or not. Can I pause for a second there? I mean, again, we started out this conversation by saying it's really two stories that collide at one point. I mean, this story, and it's not done being written, Jason. You're a young man here. I mean, your political ascension, your academic achievements, your serving over there, and everything that you've done since then with the VCP and some of the political causes that are near and dear to your heart, like voter suppression, some progressive causes. You are a great voice for so many of these things. So to me, I think this is part one. And I do think it's interesting that the book is called Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. It's not just about that. Right. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And that's for me going to the VA like that and then recounting it in this book gave me the opportunity to make therapy accessible for people so they can see sort of how I got to this next act in my life, this post-traumatic growth stage, because it makes it more accessible to people. And so as I went into the VA, 
you're right. Like I got to a point where we were maybe four months in and I was feeling much better. And I'd just been going to weekly therapy appointments. I'd been doing the homework I was given in between. And because I had never really seen any depiction of somebody in post-traumatic growth, I didn't know that was a real thing. And I thought, well, I guess maybe did I never have PTSD? How am I better so quickly? And my therapist was like, no, 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 this is how it works. This is what is supposed to happen. And he showed me all these studies to show like, yeah, yeah, this is the amount of time it takes. And yeah, I, it is an ongoing part of my life. I don't go to weekly therapy anymore, but when things happen in my life, I do sometimes go in just like anything else. Like I go to my regular doctor for a blood test every six months. And more recently in my life, I've been really involved in Afghan evacuation efforts ever since last August. And it was about six weeks ago that my wife was like, hey, I think maybe it's time to deal with some of that stuff. And so I went back to Nick, my therapist at the VA, and I did, I think, four appointments, four weekly appointments, and it was very helpful. But the difference now is I understand trauma is not wine. It doesn't age well. Don't let it age. Deal with it when it happens, which is not what I did 14 years ago. And this book is me saying, hey, read this so you'll know not to do that. This is the book I wish I'd been able to read then. What I find fascinating about what the nation is going through now, I've been watching these January 6th committees. This is not political, by the way. I've been watching them because I think it's incumbent upon all of us to sort of understand what happened, not only on that day, but the events leading up to it, the events in the aftermath. And I watched somebody like a Liz Cheney, who to me has been just very methodical. But then I see somebody like Adam Kinzinger, and I say to myself, you and him, you're the same type of person, politics notwithstanding. Probably have different views on different things politically. That's fine. But there's a steadiness to both of you that I think this country needs. Have you been watching this? Do you find that to be at all interesting? Because I think we're all going through a very similar thing right now. I've been watching it a bit. I've been watching Adam Kinzinger for a while. And I've never met him. I would like to sometime. Look, Adam Kinzinger is a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And when I look at Adam Kinzinger, I just see like a lot of people I know. He's a military officer. He's approaching this not like a politician. He's approaching it like a military officer, which, by the way, is how a lot of politicians used to approach being in Congress and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of stuff he and I disagree on. But the commonality is that, well, I would just say that I do think that there is something to the idea that when people are in important positions, And getting that important position is not the hardest thing they've ever done in their life. I think there's something to that because what it means is that losing that job would, by the inverse, not be the worst thing that ever happened to them. And therefore, they're willing to do the job. And by the same token, I think that there's a lot of value in having people in office who have dealt with their stuff because we've all had stuff. And I think there's just a lot of folks in position of power who it'd be good if they dealt with their stuff. Let's talk about that for a second, because in the book, you mentioned that historically, you know, mental health issues for political candidates or politicians in general have been a death sentence. And look at the way that you have just taken on this mental health issue, which affects millions and millions of people here, whether they served in the military or not. How do you think about changing thoughts around that sort of thing? Or is Jason Kanner going to be a candidate for something else again? I know that, again, you started out state legislator, you ran for Senate. 
candidate. You were thinking about running for president. You could have easily won the KC mayoral race, that sort of thing. It seems like there's a lot more for you to do. I know you're doing a lot of great stuff with nonprofits and helping a lot of vets in a whole host of different ways. But to Guy's point, when you look at this select committee that is hopefully prosecuting a very, very worthy cause, we need more people like you who have, they know what it's like to lose something more than just a seat every two years in Congress. When I made my announcement, I really thought that that was it on my political career. When I announced like, hey, I have PTSD and suicidal thoughts, I'm going to deal with it here. I thought that what I was doing was taking a leap of faith, a chance that maybe I could go to therapy and get better because I had no idea if I could. I just couldn't go anymore. So I I couldn't keep going. And I was like, I got to go do this. But yeah, I thought that I was taking the one thing in my life that was going well and trading that in for the chance of being able to get better. What I had no idea of at the time was how people were going to respond to it. And it's either this or the work I do with Veterans Community Project or the Afghans that I've been able to play a part in evacuating over the last few years that are the most important things in terms of public impact outside of being a, a father and a husband that I've ever done in my life. They put everything I did in public office like way in the rear view in terms of my impact and my importance. And so that means a couple of things to me. One, yeah, look, I think if at some point, and it's very possible that if at some point I, again, have the desire to seek an office like mayor or president or something, that I think I could do that. Uh, I know I could do the job, but it also means for me that I have learned that if what I care about, and it is very much what I care about now, if what I care about is just making a difference, boy, I've made a much bigger difference without having to worry about hanging on to a political office than I did before. And so in the future, maybe I'll run for something again, but I guess I'm just really comfortable now being like, I don't know, maybe one day, but I'm not doing anything to try and make it happen. Jason, so I kind of searched through your stuff and I try to find comments that you might make about Wall Street because obviously this is an investment style podcast and we like to talk about all different subject matter. I'm just curious, not your thoughts on Wall Street in general, but make sure that you're aware the amount that Wall Street does. And really, it was happening before 9-11 but it really accelerated after. I mean, City has programs where they hire veterans. Drexel Hamilton's a firm that's dedicated, 100% owned by veterans, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan. Everybody wants to be involved. And I'm just curious, your thoughts on that in general? Are you active at all? And I don't ask you to take a stance of whether you think Wall Street's good or bad, but I'd just love to get your thoughts on that. No, it's fine. I actually, particularly with Veterans Community Project, I raise money for it as a nonprofit. So I've spent a lot of time with folks in the finance industry, in particular in New York, talking about this stuff. And one of the things that I've noticed is that this is a world that I hope that in this regard, the rest of the private sector in the United States can catch up to in that it is a world that understands that military veterans have a lot they bring to the table beyond like, hey, can we make them a police officer or a security guard? Which I think too much of our society thinks like, well, that's the transferable skill and it doesn't go beyond that. And I have met a lot of people on Wall Street who came out of the military. That's where they developed their leadership skills. That's where they developed their decision-making skills. And so I, I would absolutely credit the industry for identifying that and for recognizing that giving veterans a job is not a act of charity. It is a really solid business decision. I would actually say that what's going on on Wall Street right now, they may need to move into some of these mini homes soon enough. So maybe you can do a project for Wall Street. Just one other thing on that. I was fortunate enough to be involved in Navy SEAL Foundation, Army Rangers, Lead the Way Fund, Jimmy Regan, who went to Duke. I don't know if you know his story. He was a lacrosse player about your age, graduated in 2004, could have worked on Wall Street, could have done anything. And he wanted to basically fight for the country and became an Army Ranger. And 
I was very involved in that. When I was involved with that charity, I bought one of these weekends where you go down, fly into Memphis, and you go to this secret location in Arkansas. And three of my buddies and I went there for two days, put the packs on, did rescues, did all that stuff. And what was really interesting or horrifying, I should say, is that the Green Berets and the people, we would take them out at night on Beale Street. We'd be like, hey, guys, come out with us. The amount of PTSD that they had from being in the fight, they showed us videos. They had cameras on their helmets. They showed us some stuff. And we were sitting in restaurants and they won't sit with their back to the window and they're walking down the street. And when I left there with my friends, I said, my God, they fought a war and now they're back and they're in their own country. And there feels and I could see it. And so when I read your book, it brought back out all that raw emotion. And so seeing that, I would tell everybody out there to reach out to veterans and, and just communicate because I was felt helpless. I mean, what they went through and so I would never see something. But just want to get your thoughts on that in general and those organizations. And they do so much. Yeah, no, there's a lot of great organizations that that work with veterans. And I think when you were telling that story, what it had me thinking about is just the way that in our country right now, the military community and the civilian community are so disparate. And the thing is, it really contributes to this sense of isolation among veterans. Because when you think back to our history, well, heck, this is the longest consecutive period in American history without some form of mandatory service. And what that means is folks come home after serving and all of a sudden there's very few people around them who really had a common experience with them. It's why at Veterans Community Project, we have a village of people who have a shared experience. That's what it all starts with, right? And so in other cultures, there's a real effort made to reorient and to bring the warrior back into the society. But the way they do it is they close that distance by having a lot more people experience what you experienced to watch the videos, to get a better sense of what it is to be in that fight. And what that does is it gives you a greater understanding of them, but it also closes the distance just a little bit between you and them. And then what happens is, is that you as a member of, of a community, like myself as a member of a community, I don't feel quite as separate from other people. If I feel like they've at least shown genuine interest and learned about what we did. The example I use in the book is that Native American tribes often had ceremonies where the warriors would come back and they would, the whole tribe would get together and everybody would tell in vivid detail the stories from what they saw. And what that allowed is, is for the entire community to have somewhat experienced it together. And I, for me, it's like, a lot of those times when I was campaigning and, you know, I was talking about my service because it's what I had done professionally, but I knew which stories I could tell and which stories I could sanitize and tell, which stories I could tell and get a laugh and which stories I learned quickly, which stories you don't tell because people aren't ready for it and they recoil and they see you differently. And that increases the sense of isolation among veterans. Jason, it takes courage to serve we thank you on behalf of Danny, Dan, and myself. Thank you for your service. But you know what? It also takes courage to be vulnerable and to talk about these things and to seek help. And I think more people should understand that, not look at it as a weakness, but actually a strength. And I will say this. I think our country needs more Jason Canders on both sides of the aisle. And I encourage all of our listeners to go out and get your book, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. Thank you for joining us, Jason. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.